The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, turn uh, in your scriptures to Psalm 105. Might seem an odd place to start a series on Exodus, but you'll find out why as we read through. Here the Exodus, this is a psalm of the Exodus, uh, explicitly so. Uh, remembering God's mighty works, and tonight I want to speak on the the principle of Exodus as we see it laid out for us in Scripture. So Psalm 105, we'll read the whole psalm. This is the Word of God. O give thanks to the Lord, call upon his name, make known his deeds among the peoples, sing to him, sing praises to him, Tell of all his wondrous works, glory in his holy name, let the hearts of those who seek the Lord rejoice. Seek the Lord in his strength, seek his presence continually, remember the wondrous works that he has done, his miracles and the judgments he uttered. O offspring of Abraham, his servant, children of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord, our God, his judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word that he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant that he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as your portion for an inheritance." When they were few in number, of little account, and sojourners in it, wandering from nation to nation, from one kingdom to another people, he allowed no one to oppress them. He rebuked kings on their account, saying, Touch not my anointed ones, do my prophets no harm. When he summoned a famine on the land, and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. His feet were hurt with fetters, his neck was put in a collar of iron, until what he had said came to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. The king sent and released him, the ruler of the people set him free. He made him lord of his house and ruler of all his possessions, to bind his princes at his pleasure, and to teach his elders wisdom. Then Israel came to Egypt. Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. He turned their hearts to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness and made the land dark. They did not rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood and caused their fish to die. Their land swarmed with frogs, even in the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came swarms of flies and gnats throughout their country. He gave them hail for rain and fiery lightning bolts through their land. He struck down their vines and fig trees and shattered the trees of their country. He spoke, and the locusts came, young locusts without number, which devoured all the vegetation in their land and ate up the fruit of their ground. He struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of all their strength. Then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, 
and there was none among his tribes who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for dread had fought, dread of them had fallen upon it. He spread a cloud for a covering and fire to give light by night. They asked, and he brought, brought quail and gave them bread from heaven in abundance. He opened the rock, and water gushed out. It flowed through the desert like a river, for he remembered his holy promise and Abraham, his servant. So he brought his people out with joy, his chosen ones with singing, and he gave them the lands of the nations. And they took possession of the fruit of the people's toil, that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. (coughs) Mighty God, we ask you now that you would open our minds, open my mouth, that we might hear of this great work of redemption and see how it affects us in our daily lives. Be pleased to speak to us, we pray. Our Father in heaven, we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to start this series on Exodus with something of a thematic sermon. Clearly, I'm not going to preach on every verse of Psalm 105. We're going to look at what the Exodus principle is. Now, the Exodus is clearly an historical fact and a theological paradigm or pattern or principle. And I want to say to you, it's profoundly important that we understand the Exodus principle, because it speaks to how God has dealt with his people throughout the ages. It speaks to how he has dealt with us in our personal lives. And it's even more important because it speaks of a Christological experience, that Exodus is something our Lord Jesus himself went through. And in going through Exodus, our Lord provides for us a redemption from sin, a way back, as it were, to the promised land of heaven where we will enjoy his presence forevermore. In other words, Exodus is profoundly theological and it's profoundly practical. It speaks to us of the pattern of the trials of this life and yet assures us of the good work of salvation and redemption that God is doing on our behalf. The first thing I want to ask tonight from Psalm 105 is, what is the Exodus principle? Can we see a principle of Exodus, what it looks like from Psalm 105? And then we'll look at, secondly, we'll look at the Exodus principle throughout Scripture itself. Uh, Much work in recent years has been done on Exodus in the academy and in the church, and there are many fine works out there. Nothing I say tonight differs substantially from any of those good works. Dr. Michael Barrett of Puritan Seminary has a book out recently on Exodus, and he says this in the introduction, Exodus reveals truths about the gospel that are essential for salvation. And it does so in large part through the medium of redemptive history, the history of God's dealings with his people. He says this, looking at the picture of Exodus discloses the message of the gospel. The picture discloses the message. For Dr. Barrett, the principle or the pattern of Exodus 
is really what he says is the pattern of the whole of Scripture and is the pattern uh, of the Heidelberg Catechism, if those of you from a continental background will know this. Misery, deliverance, gratitude. That's the pattern, he says, broadly speaking, of the exodus. I endorse what he says there. Uh, Dr. Michael Morales also has written a fine work on Exodus, uh, focuses upon the idea of exile before Exodus, that prior to the Exodus of God's people, the nations were exiled from God from the Garden of Eden. They were cast out, sent out from the country that God had made for them. Which tells, or Morales then works through that principle and says this, the nations are the target of God's redemptive acts. Not just Israel. If the nations were exiled in Adam, the nations will also be redeemed in Christ. And for Morales, Exodus is a reclaiming of the people of Israel by God that they might go out and be a light to the nations around them. That as Israel lived in obedience before God and God poured out blessing upon them, the nations round about would see the wonderful works of God in and through his people. Nothing I say tonight will disagree with either of these two perspectives. But our goal in working through Psalm 105 tonight is to determine the themes of Exodus. I say they're sixfold. The themes of Exodus. If you have the outline, you'll see those themes before you. Those themes are going to inform our theology, our experience, and our daily expectations of life in this world life before God. If we understand the Exodus theme properly, it will inform our theology, our experience, our expectations, and consequently, our behavior. In other words, Exodus is both theological and practical. It has value and worth to each one of us here this night. So what are the elements, then, of Exodus. We're going to see these laid out for us in Psalm 105. I'm going to be as quick as I can on these, working our way through Psalm 105. The first principle of Exodus is this, that Exodus is a covenantal experience. Exodus is a covenantal experience. Look at Psalm 105, verses 7 to 11. He is Yahweh, our God, the Lord, our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever. The word he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant he made with Abraham, his sworn promise to Isaac, which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute. The language there is thoroughly covenantal. You have the covenant name of God, Jehovah, Yahweh, in the name Lord, You have the covenant people, the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And you have the covenant mentioned explicitly that God remembers his covenant. And the first thing we need to understand is that Exodus is limited to the covenant people. It is a covenant experience. It is an experience ordained and organized and enacted by the covenant God for the covenant people in response to the covenant promises God made. That's to say the God of Exodus, our God, is a God that does not forget his covenant promises for his people. 
There's the payoff for us. He does not forget his promises. He does not forget his covenant arrangements. The word that he commanded for a thousand generations. This word is sure. Exodus is a covenantal experience. In other words, Exodus is bound up by covenant. Just like we are bound up by covenant and God has bound himself to us in covenant. That's to say because God swore an oath. He enacts Exodus to deliver his people in order to fulfill his covenant purposes. Friends, that ought to give us a huge sense of assurance as we start this study on Exodus. In those times of deep, deep trouble in life, and those times can be very deep and very dark, we'll see in a moment that we ought to expect those times in life. That is part of the Exodus principle, But the Exodus principle, because it is a covenant experience, reminds us that God will not be slow, nor will he fail to redeem his people from the darkest days. The Exodus principle has great payoff to each one of you tonight, dealing with your assurance that through all the trials of life, we can never forget our covenant God. Why? Because he will never forget us. Exodus is most assuredly a covenantal experience. The second principle we see of Exodus is that it involves departure from the promised land, the place of promise and of blessing. We see in verse 16, uh, we see that a famine breaks out in the land and Joseph is sold down into slavery to pave the way, as it were, for Israel, verse 23, to come down into Egypt. Look at verse 23. Then Israel came to Egypt. Where were they before that? They were in the promised land. Exodus involves a departure from the promised land or the place of blessing. The promised land here was afflicted in some sort of way, famine. And we need to understand that the promised land is central to God's covenant dealings with his people. Go back to verse 10. The covenant which he confirmed to Jacob as a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying, to you I will give the land of Canaan. And there were many other promises in this covenant with Abraham, but they all centered, as it were, on the land of Canaan. It shall be your portion and an inheritance. There is a departure from the place of blessing into what eventually is a place of hardship. Friends, we recognize this in our lives, that this place is not our eternal resting place, at least not in the state in which it is now, nor in the state in which we are. This place, this life, is a time of hardship, of trial, of difficulty. God, at times, appears distant to us, if not as a result of our own sin and chastening, just life in this world is hard. We learn that the pattern here of exodus, of salvation, of indeed our whole lives, is that there is a time whereby we depart from a place of blessing. And when we depart from that place of blessing, uh, we see the third principle that exodus involves persecution and oppression. There is hardship. Look at Psalm 105, verse 24. 
And the Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. The third principle of Exodus is this. It involves oppression and persecution. The Lord made the Egyptians hate his people. Notice that. It is the Lord who did it. Now, the Egyptians saw that Israel was growing growing fruitful and prosperous, and they decided to enslave uh, God's people. But here the psalmist says this was an act of God, that God was fundamentally in control of this period of persecution and oppression. He turned their hearts to hate his people. See, the persecution and oppression principle in Exodus is not just by mere chance. It is put there by God himself. We read of the horrors and terrors of that time of slavery and oppression. We know that the Egyptians were instrumentally responsible, but ultimately God ordained such. What does that teach us, friends? It teaches us that layer upon layer of Exodus theology and Exodus themes, we're seeing our God is in control. When bad things happen to God's people, either individually, familiarly, or indeed corporately as a covenant community, God is in control. It is the will of God that his people entered into this trial of persecution and oppression. We ought not be surprised, friends, as Christians, when we find this life to be such a day of trial, a life of hardship, where there is oppression and persecution from our enemies. Don't be surprised when that comes. Expect it, but expect it under the hand of the sovereign, covenantly faithful God, who has in fact promised to deliver us from such a reality. That's the fourth principle. That while, thirdly, there is persecution and oppression, fourth exodus involves miraculous redemption. It involves miraculous redemption. Look at verse 26 and 27. We read, He sent Moses, servant, and Aaron, whom he had chosen. They performed his signs among them and miracles in the land of Ham. Miracles were done as part of this redemption. And we could read verse 28 down to verse 36, which is a recounting of the 10 plagues that God miraculously brought upon the people of Egypt, bringing them to the point of verse 36, the death of the firstborn. We don't even read of the miraculous delivery of Egypt through the Red Sea in this psalm, but we know that's part of the deliverance. Friends, this is truly miraculous. It's the supernatural. It's the great God of heaven and earth at work, acting mightily out of the ordinary in order to deliver his people. That's really important. As we read verses 28 to 36, we're stunned by the the staggering nature of God's power through his servants, Moses and Aaron. But friends, as astonished as we are by these great and miraculous works done in Egypt to bring the covenant people out, I want to say to you we should be even more astonished by the great power and wisdom and righteousness of God that sent his own son into this world to live and die that we might be delivered from sin. 
One is great. The exodus of Israel is great. The exodus in Christ is profoundly greater because it delivered people not just from physical slavery but from spiritual slavery. From the conception, the birth, the life of Christ, his ministry, his teaching, his miracles, his death and his resurrection, we must surely conclude that we are witnesses to so great a salvation that has been wrought for us. We are enjoying that reality. This, friends, this fourth principle is the centerpiece of Exodus theology a miraculous redemption. But the fifth principle is this. Exodus involves a return to the promised land. We saw its counterpart being a departure from the promised land, oppression, deliverance. Now we have a return to the promised land. Verse 37, then he brought out Israel with silver and gold, and there was none among the tribes who stumbled. The rest of the psalm deals really with the entrance into the promised land. And it's easy to see the material wealth that Israel left uh, Egypt with. They returned to the promised land with great blessing. We read in Exodus that they plundered the Egyptians. The the Egyptians were, were, were tripping over themselves trying to get the Israelites out of the land. They gave them silver. They gave them gold. Israel left a wealthy nation as it went back into the promised land. But as great as the material blessing they had was, verse 39, what they had more spiritually was greater than that. They had God's presence with them, a cloud for a covering, fire by night. He fed them uh, physically and spiritually, quail, bread from heaven, the rock and the water. Why is all this true? For he remembered his holy promise. Verse 42. He remembered his holy promise and Abraham his servant. God did these things because he made covenant with his people. That's why he did them. Why should they be brought out? Verse 45. That they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Morales is right when he says that God bringing Israel out of Egypt through Exodus was that he might bring them unto himself as his chosen people that they might then live. How? Keeping his statutes, observing his laws, that they might be a light to the nations round about them. That was their evangelistic witness, to live well before the Lord. And we can immediately begin to see similarities between us and them. Our delivery from the slavery to sin, and our move into the immeasurable blessing of life in Christ. Not just so that we might enjoy such a reality, but that we might be a light to the nations round about us. And the sixth principle, which is really undergirding this whole text, the sixth principle of Exodus, is that it is a Christological experience. If the first principle, if Exodus is a covenantal experience, uh, that is the covenant God delivering his covenant people according to his covenant promises, how then can we leave out the mediator of that covenant? We can't. Israel's experience here 
all the saints of the old covenant, the saints of the new covenant are bound up in Christ. That's why we just sung about union with Christ. Look back over that hymn we've just sung. Think about the riches, the manifold riches that we see in union with Christ. United to Christ by faith, we too, we'll see in a minute, will enter into an exodus-like experience. Because our Lord went through an exodus-like experience. We're united to him, friends, by faith. That means we're united to him in the blessings and we're united to him in and through the hardships. We must be united to him in his death, as Paul says, Romans 6, if we are also to be united with him in life. We must be united to him while he's at the cross if we are to be united with him at resurrection, united with him in perseverance, united with him in glorification glory must follow the cross for the christian and so if you have the outline before you you'll see that these principles reflect upon their counterpart it is firstly a covenantal experience and lastly a christological experience secondly it involves departure from the promised land fifthly it involves return to the promised land the third principle it involves persecution and oppression and the fourth principle it involves a mighty deliverance you can see how they work towards the middle mirroring each other so what of it what's the purpose of this fine principle Well, the first thing we need to note as we come to the second point, how we see it through Scripture, is that first of all, we're going to limit our focus significantly. Uh, We we could be all night here working our way through Scripture, looking at the Exodus principle. We want to look at some examples of it in Scripture, apart from the Exodus of the nation. And in so doing, we're going to see that we are right at the heart of Exodus, and Exodus is our own experience. Let's look at Exodus in the Old Testament, first of all, and I'm going to be very brief. Uh, We could look at Abraham's Exodus in Genesis chapter 20. Go there and look, and you'll see all these points laid out for us. We could look at Isaac's Exodus in Genesis 26, or Jacob's Exodus in Genesis 27 through 31, or Lot's Exodus experience. David has an Exodus Experience. You'll have to go away and do the work on that yourselves. In other words, the Exodus experience in the Old Covenant is not unique to the nation. In fact, as far back as Genesis 12, Abraham's calling, we see an Exodus-like experience. Genesis 12 is very important. It's the call of Abraham. Genesis 12 and Genesis 20 are basically mirror images. They are Abraham's two Exodus-like experiences. What's going on in Genesis 12? Abraham has been called from his country, his kindred, and his father's house. And he's told to go to the land that God would give him. God would make him a great nation, bless him, make his name great. And in him, all the families of the earth would be blessed. But then what do we find immediately happening in Genesis 12:10? Abraham has made it to the promised land. He's made that enormous journey by faith. 
and he gets to the promised land, and we read this. Now, there was a famine in the land, Genesis 12 and verse 10. So let's work through the principles of Exodus very quickly. Exodus is a covenant experience. God has made covenant with Abraham at the start of Genesis 12. He has called him. Abraham is the chosen seed. God is going to be his God. This narrative is wrapped up in the context of God making covenant. Yes, it's a covenant experience, but it also involves departure from the promised land. Genesis 12:10, he can't stay in Canaan. Where does he go? He goes down to Egypt to escape the famine, not the first time that happens. While in Egypt, he experiences the third principle, oppression and persecution. You know what happens? Pharaoh sees Sarai, his wife, thinks she's beautiful, and takes her to be his wife. As immediate threat to the covenant lineage, if, if Sarai is no longer Abraham's wife, there's oppression. But there's a great deliverance, is there not? A great deliverance. God delivers Sarai and Abraham. We read this in chapter 12, verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his great house, and his house with what? With great plagues. You see what's happening? Sowing the seeds for the great exodus itself. Great plagues. God afflicts the oppressor, Pharaoh, so that Abraham can be delivered. And he returns to the promised land with what? With great Wealth. We read this. Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. They sent him away with his wife and all that he had. And immediately we read again in chapter 13. So Abraham went up from Egypt, he and his wife, and all that he had, and lot with him into the Negev. I hope we can see very briefly. We can't spend any time tracing it out anymore. Abraham went through something like an Exodus-like experience. I say to you, if you go to Genesis 20, you'll find the same matter again. If you go to Genesis 26, you'll see Isaac going through the same experience. And then over four chapters, 27 to 31, you will also see Jacob doing the same. Now, if it happened to Old Covenant saints, as frequently as I'm saying it does, and you can do the work yourself to be convinced yourself, would we be surprised if we saw it also in the New Covenant, this same Exodus principle being outworked in the lives of God's people? We shouldn't be surprised. Of course, it's there. Uh, Think of Peter in Acts chapter 12. Peter is the focal point of the covenant people at that time. He's one of God's chosen, Christ's chosen, called apostles. He is a covenant member. Uh, There's a departure, spiritually speaking, from the place of blessing the promised land. What happens to him in Acts 12? He's snatched from the church, the place of blessing, and he's imprisoned by Herod. Herod's going to seek to put him to death the next day. That's the oppression that also takes place. We notice in Acts 12 that uh, James, the brother of John, is killed with the sword by Herod. And Peter is imprisoned during the days of unleavened bread. He's going to bring him out to the people the next day, almost certainly to kill him also. There's great oppression, but there's also a greater 
deliverance. If we read the text in Acts 12, verse 6 following, and study it carefully, we'll find Exodus language and ideas right throughout the text. Even in the small details of Peter in prison in the night when an angel comes to him and tells him to put his cloak on and put his sandals on and do it in haste, just like the children of Israel were told in the Exodus. Anyway, his deliverance is this. Uh, He walks out past the guards, two sets of guards, and he comes to the city gates, which in Red Sea-like fashion open before him, and he leaves the place of oppression, returning then to the promised land of the people of God, as it were, Peter undergoing a Christ, an Exodus-like experience. I wish we had more time to delve into those passages. Go and read them for yourself and see if what I'm saying is accurate. He has a miraculous delivery and is restored to the people of God. Now, is this just a nice theological pattern? If Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, Lot, Peter went through it, is it just a nice theological pattern, or is there something real behind this? I want to say to you, friends, those saints went through that experience because they were united to the one who ultimately went through Exodus, Jesus Christ. And you're thinking, how did Christ go through Exodus? Luke chapter 9 and verse 30 tells us the answer. It's the transfiguration of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 30 reads, And behold, two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. That word for departure there in the Greek is the Greek word exodus. It's the same word used in Hebrews 11.22 when Joseph spoke of Israel's departure from Egypt, the reckoning or the accounting of that. Here, Christ's departure, his exodus, is his death at Calvary's cross. And we have to say that his exodus is the pinnacle of exodus experience in its parts and themes and in total. Exodus, we've said, is a covenant experience. Was there any more covenantal figure than the chosen son, the servant of God, the one called of God. He's not just a covenant member, he's the very mediator of this covenant. It involves a departure from the promised land. Most certainly, our Lord left the glories of the eternal promised land. Remember, the promised land of Israel is a picture of heaven itself. Christ left the glories of heaven to sojourn for a time in this sin-wracked world. In that time, most certainly he faced oppression and persecution, the likes of which we can only imagine. We will never experience such realities. His suffering was unimaginable, suffering at the hands of wicked men. Yet, when Luke records his exodus, his departure, he says this, who appeared in glory and spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Just like God turned the hearts of the Egyptians against the Israelites, here we understand that Christ himself 
in going to the cross, yes, being killed by lawless men, he was accomplishing his mission. He was in control. He was the main actor. He played the controlling part in his own death, his own exodus. And so he went to the cross, and so he died for sins, but miraculously was delivered through resurrection and returned to glory, the promised land of glory in his ascension. The point is this, friends, it would just be a nice pattern of experience. That's all it would be if Christ had not experienced it, if our Lord had not gone through this exodus. Rather, because he did, it is the point of highest theological and experiential significance for the Christian. It is the point of highest theological and experiential significance. Why? Because all Christians, as we've just sang, are united to Christ by faith. We're united to Christ by faith. Union with Christ means that the Christian is inseparably bound in some real living way to Christ, to his person, to his work, to his ministry, to his experience, to his life, to his death. It is true in some way in union with Christ that what is true of him becomes true, dear Christian, of you. What is true of him is true of you. In union with Christ, there is the communication of his person and all his benefits and his experience unto the Christian. And that, friends, is profoundly important for you today. Profoundly important for you now. As we begin our study through this book of Exodus and we take in all the details, some of them obscure, we must never lose sight of the grand picture and pattern of redemption. We can look at it several ways. Exodus speaks of cross before the crown. Exodus speaks to us of misery, deliverance, and gratitude. And can we not say this, dear Christian, that God has not left you, as it were, spiritualizing now, yes. God has not left you in the pagan land of sin. He's redeemed you with his mighty, outstretched arm, and he will bring you under himself in the new heavens and the new earth. And we long for that day, do we not, when we are in heaven with God. But part of the reality of Exodus is a time of trouble, persecution, and oppression. And there's a sense in which our whole life now is part of that reality. Perhaps you can think back to a life that you lived under sin, when you most certainly were a slave to sin, and in Christ's life and death you've been released from that exodus, from that slavery through exodus. But even as regenerate people, can we not see this day and age what we call the veil of tears, life here on this earth, lives of trouble and hardship and trial. At times those things cast doubt over our lives. I want to say to you, friends, the Exodus principle and the Exodus narrative does not end with oppression or persecution. It does not stop halfway through the principle. 
The Exodus principle ends with glory for the children of God, of deliverance for the children of God, of entrance into the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth where we'll be reunited with Christ eternally. That's great comfort to our souls, friends, especially those of you presently going through dark days and dark trials. It's just part of the process. It's just part of this grand picture of Exodus. And if this is true of us, that while this day or or this life might be a veil of tears and there is something far greater, far better, more blessed awaiting for us, if this is true, then ought we not live lives of gratitude? That because we know the Exodus experience is ours in Christ, we ought to live lives of obedience. Because we know what has been done for us. We've been delivered from our sins. We've been assured of glory. Ought we not live lives of obedience? Ought we not seek to honor God in doing all that he has called us to do? Will we live as a light, for example, to the nations, to those about us? Do we desire that they will get to know our Lord as we do? Friends, the grand scheme of Exodus. We'll see it through the characters of the book. We'll see it through the events of the book. We'll see it through the cursings and the blessings. What will we see? We'll see God's mighty act of deliverance. That he has delivered his people historically in and through Exodus, and he most certainly will deliver us through Exodus. Exodus is a powerful theological principle and a powerful practical encouragement to each one of us here today that we do not set our eyes on the things of this world but set our eyes on Christ who accomplished his exodus for us. Let's pray. Great God, we bless you and honor you in the complexities and patterns of this life. We rejoice in you. We rejoice in Christ our Savior, his life and his death for us. Teach us, O Lord, through your word, and imprint upon our hearts the certainty, the certainty and the assurance of a full and complete and perfect salvation in and through the Savior. For we ask this in his name. Amen.